0: When the fracturing of the media landscape, or the information ecosystem, let's call it, became so pronounced that people were getting different, not just different versions of the news, but different news, it really made it so difficult to communicate something because there was no baseline truth. And when you're writing comedy, what you're relying on is a common truth, the same point of reference.
1: Hello and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain. If you were looking for a conversation about everything, this is the episode for you. I'm speaking with New York-based cartoonist and comedian Jason Chatfield. If that sounds like MSN Messenger came to life and is trying to become your friend, I can confirm that Jason has heard that joke already. Until recently, Jason was the president of the National Cartooning Society in America. Before this, he was president of the Australian Cartoonists Association. They have a gavel in the shape of a giant pencil, but otherwise, it's, I'm told it's very serious business. Before we started recording this episode, Jason insisted that I not keep calling him Mr. President. I can report that since the recording, Jason is no longer president. He left office in disgrace and is presently hiding in the woods in upstate New York. This week he sent me a drawing of a hen. He says he will be back in four years to make cartooning great again. Jason only recently became an American citizen, and a lot of this episode is about growing up, or should I say growing down under, in that strange land far, far away known as Australia. Before the recording, Jason confided in me that he is extremely self-conscious about his ridiculous accent and quite unable to deal with further jokes about his dark past as an Australian. It has taken me a long time to bring this episode to you. Thank you, dear listeners, for being so patient with me. The, The edit took longer than expected because of Jason's... How do I say this? Australian accent? Portions of this conversation may be extremely difficult to understand, but I hope you find sympathy in your heart for Jason's unfortunate circumstances. I would recommend listening at 0.5x. Maybe consider an AI transcription service. This is the first half of a three-hour conversation that went too fast. Tap the link in the episode description to see my cheat sheet. And the real-time notes I made during the recording. As good people it is incumbent upon us to accept Australians as they are, not how we want them to be. Jason would apologize for himself because he's really quite a nice guy but he just doesn't have a clue. When he first came to the US nobody told him because it would be awkward and they wanted to avoid a scene and now it's just been too long. To break into the scene in New York, Jason did multiple sets of open-mic stand-up six nights a week for three years. Six nights a week for three years. (laughs) Jason is Australia's most widely syndicated cartoonist, producing the iconic 102-year-old daily comic Ginger Meggs. His cartoons have appeared in The New Yorker, he is the portrait illustrator of the Waking Up app, and he just made a book. Find links to everything he does in the episode description. It seems like Jason does more things every week than I could do in half a year, but I suspect this is a ruse, a trick of some kind, and that really he is three separate Australians inside a trench coat. And maybe because this truth is so heartbreaking, I choose to perpetuate the illusion. Jason is amazing, guys. You are going to love this conversation. Enjoy.
0: It's a pretty intense kind of the whole, I don't know if you've done San Diego Comic Con, but it is not. It's a lot. Like, it's very exhausting. It's a lot of people every day, a hundred and, like 120 something thousand people every day. And it's oh, just, right. it takes it out of you. So I'm
1: recovering. I'm in recovery. Tell <laughs> me about it. Like I, I read your post of course, and I saw that, uh, you were selling your book, your new book, which you sold all the copies off. So congratulations. Thank you. And, uh, there were no stars there because of the strike. So it was a very different kind of Comic-Con. What was your experience? It was a different kind of Comic-Con. I've been going, that's my 15th Comic-Con in the last, like,
0: I want to say nine years, 10 years. It's been, it was so different without people lining up for Hall H, you know, for the big Star Wars and Marvel, (laughs) DC, you know, the presentation. So people actually started paying attention to the artists, uh, the comic artists at Comic-Con, God forbid. So it was really nice. And yeah, and, and this is the first year I, I had something to sell other than just like commissions. Usually I just do drawing commissions for people, quick sketches and things. But this year, obviously, I, I have the book out. Uh, you're not a real parent until. So people came by, a lot of parents came by, and then they'd sort of see it. And I'd get to up close watch the moment that they sort of flick through it and he actually hear laughs. Usually I have to wait till I'm on stage to hear laughs but it it was amazing to see like people read a thing you made and then laugh out loud it was and so I can sort of see the moment and then they'd like snap the book shut, pass it over to me go all right I'll have two I've got a brother-in-law he's expecting a kid you know it was nice
1: yeah that that part was nice. And uh, is this your first time selling a book at a stall?
0: It is. Do you have any tips?
1: <laughs> well, uh, when you were just saying that, you know, them flipping through the pages, I was reminded of my self-published books. So I just self-published when I was living in Wisconsin hmm. and uh, I sold it at the farmer's market every Saturday of summer. Right. And I would set up a stall from 6 a.m. until noon. And then I would try to entrap these people who are going to buy <laughs> veggies and milk and tell them, you know, you should buy a book instead. I read some
0: of your posts on that. I read some of the things on that about the farmer's market. It is interesting. The dynamics of interactions with people like in, in real life, it it fascinates me how people, um, once they see the person behind the thing, rather than just seeing it on a shelf, it's a totally different proposition for them. They, they have a, they have a, I guess, a more um, organic interaction with the thing. And as you know, you get very precious about your creation sometimes. I try not to be. I try to be as dispassionate as I can, but you put so much work into a book that you just really want people to enjoy it. And uh, it's it's nice when they like it, but it's also like you're really putting yourself out there. I admire your hustle
1: going out to the market (laughs) because that's
0: this episode
1: on? is about admiring your hustle because you've <laughs> been like I've been reading about the kind of stuff you've been into since you arrived on North American shores and it sure. is frankly insane to me that, <laughs> how much work you've done so we're going to focus on that okay. uh, but uh, just to fill you in I was living in this little town called Eau Claire in Wisconsin um, and this is uh, a town of just less than a hundred thousand people wow. and I was just starting to be an artist and i was at this sort of uh not an identity crisis but my what i was trying to do was in flux in my mind because i had just left my my previous life to be a writer instead
0: Mm. and
1: i wanted to i was also a comic artist so i wanted to make more comics but America and just generally being so far away from the place that I made comics about because I used to make comics about uh, Indian life and Bollywood Mm -hmm. and cricket Mm -hmm. and uh, all of those things were very very far away from my world and I Mm -hmm. felt like I wasn't being very authentic so I for various reasons among this reason I started drifting away from comics at that time and I started just drawing and then that became sneaky art and then I became quote-unquote artist and so this was my first time being very declarative about this, that, okay, I'm an artist and I'm going to own that title and I'm going to introduce myself as that and (laughs) let's see what happens. And then I, I did that for a year and the next year I sold a book. And exactly to your experience, you know, like watching somebody look through your art or your drawings or the book you made and they're flipping through the pages in front of you and then their eyes light up at a certain page. And I always want to know, okay, which page, which yeah, page exactly. is that? <laughs> how did it happen? And yeah. what is it that they connected with? Because, you know, you can't control. So, of course, uh, we should talk about this because you do this from so many different media. Mm-hmm. You can't control how people sort of bring your art into their world. It mm-hmm. becomes sort of their thing once it's in their ecosystem, you know, like they relate to your jokes a certain way, yeah. their, your comics that you draw. They will put people from their life into it into those figures and then it's Mm -hmm. their joke in a sense and so you never know what clicks with them and why and it might be something that you wouldn't think would work in that manner but it just does for them
0: that's absolutely right yeah and you also you don't there's an old saying i don't know who it is attributed to but the saying is the reaction doesn't belong to you and I think I remember maybe Austin Cleon or someone like that talking about the fact that once you put your art into the world, it takes on a life of its own. You you technically have no control. You have control over some things, but, but certainly not the interaction that it has. And it, it grows its own sort of life. You know, it, it builds its own um, sort of uh, ecosystem almost. Like the reaction that it has, uh, whether it's good or bad, is sort of up to... The audience up to the you know wherever it lands and sometimes that can that can be the most terrifying part and exhilarating as well the terrifying part of putting your art into the world is just not quite knowing how or where it is going to land with people and that was a very big lesson i had to learn is just stop trying to control the reaction because you can't you can't
1: I was going to ask you about that. Like, what is, do you also have the instinct to want to control this thing? Or have you been sort of more comfortable with, how has this process been of, you know, letting go of once you've created the thing, now it's out there and now I don't control it?
0: That's such a good question because it's something I've been wrestling with for years. I honestly, because I'm a perfectionist, right? So, uh, which is not a good thing. That's a very bad thing. I, I had to get counseling for it. Like I went to a psychologist for it because it was crippling. And, um, as you probably know, you're, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you could tweak and change and rework and overwork something for sometimes years, if you don't have a deadline, um, or if you, if you're not going to just, you know, relinquish it from your clutches and let it just go out into the world. Um, and often, uh, I would just, I I just would be so paranoid about, um, about how it how it could be in in my head versus how it came out on the page and that dissonance between what's in here and what came out of my hands um it it can be a really difficult skill to build um the i want to say um mm, let's call it resilience (laughs) let's call it an acceptance almost Mm. like a buddhist kind of acceptance of what is rather than what you intended. Yeah. Um, it's part of the reason I now use a flex nib with dip pen and ink. It's one of the most chaotic and uncontrollable ways of, and I'm sure we'll geek out about fountain pens later, but, um, of, of creating art. And I am seeding, uh, as in C-E-D-E, seeding the control of what comes out to the nib in, in, in many ways as a way for me to, um, just accept that I had uh, less and less control over what I what's up here versus what comes out of here. Um, you, there, are, I know there are artists like Jeff Smith who does bone, and um, you know artists who have such an incredible like Peter De um and 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 even like Richard Thompson who looked chaotic, but it was controlled chaos. Um, they have an ability to control what they want to control, and you mm. can see it. But they're not they're not sort of preoccupied with that process, which, yeah, as I say, perfectionism sounds sounds like a good trait. It's not. It's a very bad trait
1: for an artist oh. to have
0: because uh you never ship anything.
1: I absolutely agree. Like I, I feel like I've also been a perfectionist for too long, and I picked up the fountain pen for the same reason. Like I tell mm. people that a lot of uh, people assume that I draw with a fountain pen because I'm just good at drawing or because I already knew how to draw. And so it was easy for me to do this. But uh, I remind them that I started drawing with the fountain pen before I knew how to draw. And I did it just so that I could learn without erasing, without constantly yep. editing and checking and changing yeah. and being disappointed. This dissonance between the image in your mind or the idea in your mind and how, you know, there's always a sense of disappointment, Mm -hmm. if at least with certain works, like, you also express yourself in different ways, you have the spoken word, you have Mm -hmm. your drawings, and you have words that you write. But so, so I think you're able to understand this, that there is this, uh, almost a disappointment in all the things it could be, and then the one thing that you decided it is. And mm-hmm. the one thing that it ended up becoming and this disappointment, you can't really share with anyone because it's always only going to be inside your head, that very personal image. Mm-hmm. So nobody quite gets your frustration. <laughs> oh, and oh, oh, oh. <laughs> in my case, it's taken me like I'm a little forgiving with my art, like yeah. I like it more in the, a week later. Yeah, I sort right. of separate myself from those other ideas that I had in my mind of what I wanted it to be. Wow. But I'm still really unforgiving with my writing. And everything I write, every single post I've ever written, when I look mm-hmm. back at it, I want to change like half of it. <laughs> yeah, it, to hit publish
0: is a, a real ordeal for me. I Because I consider myself a bit of a dilettante when it comes to writing. Um, I have so much to learn. And I feel like a complete fraud every time I hit publish, just because I want to rewrite it, I want to rework it, I want to go back and change everything, and then a week later I'll look at it and go, ah, that sentence structure is a nightmare. And I, it's similar to the drawing. I sometimes just have to um, see that. All right, you have until nine a.m. and you have to hit publish. It's the SNL thing. It's you. We, you don't go live. Bec- no. What is it? We're not. We're not going live because we're ready. We're going live because it's 11.30. That's what Mm. Lorne Michaels used to say.
1: Interesting. Yeah, Yeah. I think that that sort of philosophy, that sort of idea is so useful. Like, the perfect is the enemy of the good. It's so important to just ship things, to get things out, and then get into this idea that no single product is supposed to be perfect. Because I think perfection also implies that you're sort of done Yeah, What what would you do after you're perfect already? (laughs) And this, uh, like, it makes me wonder where this idea of perfectionism came from. Like, it's so obvious that Mm. you shouldn't be perfectionist and that it stops you from creating. Mm -hmm. But every, nearly every artist you meet, or especially a lot of the people who struggle with art or writing or any kind of creative expression, and then they give it up. It's Mm. usually because they couldn't be perfect in the way they wanted to be. And even after centuries of knowing that this is not the way to get things done, we Mm -hmm. still want to be perfect. I think it's
0: intrinsic. I think it's in us. I think um, it's just something that you're not taught. You you, you have to be extrinsically, you have to be told from outside that it is an unrealistic expectation for something to be perfect. There are two people who really helped me when I was Mm -hmm. sort of, (laughs) <laughs> literally getting counselling for it. Um, one of them was Dr. Norman E. Rosenblatt wrote a book called The Gift of Adversity. And in it, there's a chapter called The Thumbs Must Go, where when he was a kid, um, they had to do this activity where they cut out like this clown or something from paper. And they had to sort of pin it uh, together with sort of moving hands and fingers and to cut with scissors out the hand shape. It was gonna take too long for him to do by the time they needed to turn it in. So he ended up just cutting off the thumbs and the thumbs must go. It, and the whole thing looked fine. No one noticed, only he noticed the thumbs weren't there. No one made a comment. He got full marks for the project. But in his head, it just started this thing of, you know, once in a while, you might just have to concede that something's not gonna be exactly perfect for the sake of it just being and, exist and going into the world. The other one is a guy called Oliver Bergman. He wrote a book called 4,000 Weeks, mm-hmm. just brain-changing book. One of those few books like Atomic Habits or something that changes your entire mind. Um, he has a great newsletter called The Imperfectionist. Okay. It comes out once a month, highly recommend. And he has so many great tools to let you let go of that, as you say, completely unnatural, unhealthy tendency for everything to be perfect, which is so counterintuitive, and it's sort of consciously rewiring your expectations so that when you do sit with a notebook, you're not crippled by what you know the 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 the, the fear that it won't come out the way you want it to come out.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, I always tend to forget this. Let me rewind a bit and <laughs> formally, quote unquote, introduce you. Sure. So, uh, good morning, and Welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast, Jason. Thank you so much for giving me your time today. Thank you very much for having me. I'm a, I'm a fan. I'm a premium subscriber and I feel like I, I almost
0: know you already. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, uh, Jason, uh, I grew up reading daily comic strips in the newspaper. That's the first place that I realized that this is a form of communication that, you know, it can say so many different things. So the newspaper that we would get in my hometown of Calcutta in India, it had syndicated comic strips from, I think, many different places and Mm -hmm. many different eras. So some of them were from the 70s, some from the 80s and 90s. And every Sunday, there would be a color comic strip, which was always the Calvin and Hobbes. Mm -hmm. And the rest of the weekdays, it would be black and white stuff. And I would have Luan and Hagar the Horrible and (laughs) Dennis the Menace. And a a phantom comic as well, and a Spider-Man comic. So now that I look back on it, it's so interesting how many different moods they were trying to satisfy. There was action, there was thriller, there was comedy, there was just life. And there was Dennis the Menace, which is just a -hmm. single big panel of silly things next to the crossword. But uh, I have never heard of Ginger Megs. So (laughs) please tell me everything about Ginger (laughs) Megs. Tell me about what is... What are australian comic strips like are they fundamentally a little different are they upside down i don't know anything about ginger mags at all (laughs) it's like every
0: canadian comic strip starts with i'm so sorry um (laughs) so it's interesting that you say that you grew up in calcutta and were reading um comics that were ostensibly um english speaking like expat uh, american comics um I Ginger Megs, the comic strip that I do, is basically an Australian Dennis the Menace, but it predates Dennis by about 40 years. He started in 1921. It's what is known as a legacy strip, which Mm -hmm. means I'm the fifth cartoonist in about 102 years to write and draw the strip. It's always a one-man shot for for Ginger Megs. He's kind of a red-headed larrikin kid. The word larrikin, I realize, doesn't translate great. He's like a, a rascal little sort of gets troublemaker rascal rapscallion oh, okay. kind of kid uh a larrikin is an australian term and it's a very nationalistic
1: kind of thing where uh australians identify as larrikins you know mm-hmm. um healthy dishes. i should remind my listeners larrikin. that we're speaking in a half in a foreign language today.
0: <laughs> yeah and cricket i mean even cricket is its own language so i grew up watching cricket uh ginger megs the strip often has him playing cricket. In fact, the very first strip in 1921 Uh uh, that featured Ginger Megs, the strip was called something else back then. It was called Us Fellows. Mm -hmm. And it was him playing cricket and hitting a ball through a a neighbor's window and and sending the pretty uh, girl, Gladys and Gladys, to go and fetch it from the angry guy whose window they just broke so that he wouldn't yell at her. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was... But uh, taking it over, I took it over when I was 23. Um, and I had been a big fan of the comic strip. And I've been doing it for 16 years. Um, so it's it's one of those mediums, as you say, it sort of transcends, uh, because it's a very visual medium It transcends a lot of language barriers, but it also is a very effective way to communicate um, ideas, humor, Um, it's used in especially what is known as sequential art, so comic Mm -hmm. art. Um, uh, Anyone who wants to really go down that rabbit hole can read Scott McLeod's Understanding Comics, which is basically deconstructing the entire medium down to why it works as well as it does. Um, Ginger Megs, he runs in the Hindustan Times, by the way. That's (laughs) interesting. (laughs) Yeah, but uh, a lot of expat uh, Aussies in India Um, read him uh, in times, but it's also mainly because of the cricket content so I do six daily strips a week which are those sort of thin four panel ones that you would have been reading reading in the daily and then the big Sunday strip I do one of those every week which is you know like the Calvin and Hobbes one you were talking about and I know this is an audio podcast but Nisha I'm going to show you my most prized possession on my wall
1: oh my god
0: it's the final Sunday strip that Bill Watterson did of Calvin and Hobbes Signed by Bill Watterson. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Yeah. It, I need to you visit it? your home because I want yeah. to steal that.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: There's a lot of... I got a lot of cartoons on my wall, but uh, that one is my my pride and joy. It was a gift from my syndicate who syndicates Ginger Megs to about 34 countries. Um, they translate it into different languages and things. Um, but it's the same syndicate that syndicates Garfield and Calvin and Hobbes and The Far Side and all those comics. Uh, and Luann, you know, that that's another one. I, Greg and Karen Evans are very close friends of mine and they um, they'd be interested to know that you know you're growing up in
1: Calcutta reading Luan which is such a, an American script oh but yeah like Llan, I remember yeah. her brother was a distinct character and yeah. there was some some guy who used to who had a crush on her but she didn't like I think Gunther or somebody yeah unrequited love yeah yeah all
0: of those themes are so uh I guess universal but it's you know I always get surprised when I see international comics pages. I've, I was flying through Fiji one time, mm-hmm. and I started to look up the Fiji Times, and Ginger Meggs was in there, and the other comics were like the Phantom and Garfield, obviously because Garfield seems to be in every newspaper. Um, but there were some strips I would never heard of that were under them, and then like Modesty Blaze, you know, like oh yeah, <laughs> Modesty Blaze <laughs> too. Strips. Yeah. yeah, I, I was- remember, I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> And I still, you know, um, internationally, I still self-syndicate to some papers. Like, so I talk to the PG Times and I I sort of ask them, you know, sometimes like, hey, do you ever get any feedback? And they write, like they put on their blog and everything, like certain scripts that resonated and they'll talk about them. Um, Because Australian comics, getting to your question,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: they are distinctly Australian in that A, the characters and the settings are unique and B our sense of humor is, is, is distinct from say American or British or uh, any, like I I have friends by virtue of growing up in Perth in Western Australia. A lot of my friends were from Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia. Um, you know, because it's like, it was like three hour flight to to Bali. That's where we went on vacation because it was five hours to Sydney or three hours to Bali. So we're going to Bali. Um, so, I had, it was an interesting mix in school. Um, and my, uh, one of my best friends was from India and it was interesting sort of seeing, um, how the Australian sort of let's call it culture, <laughs> the Australian culture sort of meshed with that multicultural input. Cause they were all, they were all first generation immigrants. And it was like seeing, seeing the contrast was, was, you know, when you're a kid, you don't know, you have no context for that. But as an adult, you look back and go, oh, wow. Like uh, I I now understand what a, what a huge, and also as an immigrant now, I see, I realize what a huge um, change it must have been. Um, and so to that end, the Australian cartoons and comic strips do have something that is fairly I want to say esoteric. I want to say, like, it's very, there's some language that really only tracks in Australia. The word, like, you know, larrikin. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah, there are just certain things that there's like a subtext or a shorthand that we all have, you know, Mm. um, which actually works against us in many cases. Um, So when Ginger Makes was syndicated internationally, the editors had to change much of the localized references to make them comprehensive, comprehensible to international audiences. It does get translated into like French and Spanish and different, um, I think Bahasa and different, different, different different, um, languages. And sometimes the translations do not work. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: You know, uh, so many threads there to go down. I'm going to pick one at a time, randomly. Uh, One of them was, you said, uh, expat American comics. So I never thought of syndication as a way to reach your audience that lives in another country De- uh, mm-hmm. this uh help me make sense of this how does this work and how does like uh is it usually syndicated to countries where there are expat australians and they know there's uh, therefore a market for it is that it
0: yes so for instance uh ginger mags appears in the Bangkok post and there it runs as a daily and as a sunday strip and i went there to meet with the the editor and the um of the staff at that newspaper and they said that they on their they do like a survey of almost like a census of like who's reading it and where and how and they said so many expat australians living in thailand were reading um that paper which is why they wanted ginger Megs, and, and yeah it's not it was interesting to get that sort of insight because when I took over the strip, it was already running in Thailand and I didn't realize. And then I sort of did the, went through the whole list of where it was appearing and was like, oh, I, I didn't think there would be any audience there. And then they explained it to me. They're like, no, no, there's a lot of expats here who find um, a relationship with something like a book or like an author or a journalist or a comic strip or something that reminds them of home um, or that connects them with their home our country and yes, it is a medium that um, that finds its audience wherever it is. And the newspapers and the syndicates do their diligence on like demographics of readership and all that. Otherwise, they you know, I mean, they wouldn't run the strip. I mean, it's a it's a wasted effort if no one's reading it. So they yeah. do their the back end on it. Yeah,
1: yeah. And with legacy comics like Ginger Meggs has been around for over a hundred years now, and Uh, you know, I think it's the same with Dennis the Menace, Mm -hmm. and it was the same, it's also the same with all of these syndicated comics that run over decades, is there is this sense of timelessness that they they maintain, Mm -hmm. and in order for, you know, those key markers to be hit, and for it to continue to hit the same market and the same general demographic over Mm -hmm. decades, and it's interesting to me, like, tell me a little bit about how uh, so coming into it as a 23 year old, and mm-hmm. taking over this thing, which has been around for decades and decades, and is such a big part of the culture. Yeah. Um, what are the obligations on your end to help, you know, steer the ship and manage it in the direction that it's been going? Like, for example, uh, can ginger Megs have a smartphone?
0: <laughs>
1: um. It, yeah. So the obligation,
0: that i had was enormous because it is it it, over time just by virtue of just existing for so many decades it sort of vacuumed up the zeitgeist of each decade in australia and ended up becoming kind of a time capsule of, of australian culture because it is such a young country and our culture is still evolving so it became this sort of bellwether for how australians speak and think and what our values are and and that's a huge responsibility to take on but I also was very aware that I didn't want to include anything political because it is escapism. Same with my standup. I don't, I don't get political. I want people to be able to just sit and enjoy and, you know, just not have to think about all the other stuff that's been going on in the rest of the world or the newspaper. Um, and that sort of, yeah, it was a big, big, difficult, uh, job to both steer this old steamship in the wind um, towards a more modern audience to try and find the readers where they were going because they were migrating away from newspapers when I took it over. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was a giant, giant... um, When I took it over in 2007, it was right before a giant uh, migration from print to online Um, which I needed to sort of be there when they arrived, when the readers arrived. So, you know, I was on Tumblr and Twitter and Facebook and uh, (laughs) remember Tumblr. Um, And uh, I was sort of trying to make sure that I was covering all my bases for that while still maintaining the integrity of the strip. And it's a really delicate balancing act because you don't want to alienate your readership who are very loyal and very protective. Um, But you also don't want to stagnate and just become sort of the museumify this the strip, you know, have it sort of just become this stale, irrelevant thing. So I had to kind of do a bit of both. You're, you're trying to cater to both audiences, which is you're doing this tap dance, this constant, um, I guess, yeah, a one foot in both uh, pools. It's, it's, it's tough. Um, I did give him a smartphone eventually. I took a long while because he's quite a poor kid. He's not in a upper middle is quite a is a scrapper right Mm -hmm. so he's always trying to make things happen and hustle and and kind of set up a lemonade stand or sell his dad's shoes or something to to make a few bucks to buy some movie tickets to impress his the girl that he likes you know and he um you know builds his billy cart out of um you know the the wheels from his his bin you know like it's just he he got a phone because it was a hand-me-down And he got it quite late. Everyone else, all his other friends had a, had a smartphone first. His rich friend Fitzy had a, he was the first to have a smartphone. And once I brought that in, got a bit of pushback from readers going, oh, come on. You know, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, look at your grandkids, look at your kids. What are they doing right now? They're staring at a tablet. They're staring at a phone. Like to not put it in would be a very conspicuous, you know, absence. And one of the other big things that I did, and I have to tell you, this was the most challenging part of, um, I guess the the most challenging part. And this, this is not necessarily a reflection of the myopia or xenophobia (laughs) that was sort of inherent in Australian culture. It's been a very weird time for Australia because it's, it's, it's quite a conservative country and it's had some, conservative governments, and I don't see eye to eye on a lot of the politics in Australia. What I did was I asked some of my friends who, um, who were, um, uh, living in Australia and wanted to be able to sort of see themselves and their kids in comic strips. Um, I was like, okay, so what do we do? Um, how do I slowly and not tokenistically work in some new characters so that the strip actually looks like modern Australia? Because when it started in 1921, everyone was white, everyone was spoke English, every everyone you know thought the same way and ate the same foods. Um, but I ended up I brought in a um, a part Indian, part Sri Lankan uh, character, um, and again had to sort of consult with friends who grew up. Um, in those countries and, and had mixed families. So even the dynamics of the parents and what the last name would be based on the, mm-hmm. the, the, the families and what they would eat, what they would like, how they would speak, but how they would speak living in Australia. So right. bringing their culture and their traditions in without it looking like we're being, you know, um, disrespectful. So, um, that was Rahul Jayasinger, uh, my friend, uh, Dilruk Jayasinger, he's a comedian in Australia. He helped me develop that character and the back the background of that, and I named I gave the character his last name, um, and then uh, my friend Ronnie Cheng is a comedian. He helped me develop Penny Cheng, um, who is a Malaysian Australian. Um, her mother came from Malaysia as a single mother, and again, you know, trying to reflect the realities of what a family looks like now. Not everyone is married. Not everyone <laughs> is raising a child. You know, co-parenting. Um, and bringing in these characters without making them tokenistic or cliched, you know, um, uh, we brought in an indigenous Australian character, uh, mm-hmm. Gloria, uh, Gloria Tudor hope. And she, uh, again, we consulted with, um, you know, uh, indigenous, ig- indigenous Australians to make sure that we weren't being offensive or tokenistic or anything like that. And making sure that she didn't like, she wasn't, uh, you know, this, totem for any like, like she plays the violin and she loves running like this <laughs> there's nothing stereotypical about her um but she does share sort of parts of her culture through her character so bringing those in took about 10 years that was a very slow burn and again wanting to modernize it while still remaining respectful
1: for the source material it was a huge delicate balancing act oh yeah like i'm just thinking about how a lot of these comics, like even Dennis the Menace, for example, it has this sense of an idyllic suburban life. And yeah. those ideas have changed. And the audience, the the market that's, you know, the majority of the market that's going to consume these comics today uh, maybe does not identify with that world or that life or those aspirations. Mm-hmm. And even the idea of introducing a non-white character like Someone might think it's not so difficult, but I'm thinking about the super popular and it's made so much money, this TV show, A Big Bang Theory. Yeah. and yeah. It's uh, Indian character is basically no ethnicity, like his name doesn't make sense. And <laughs> the one time they showed his parents, it just didn't make sense that they would look like this considering his name and you know like they mixed up ethnicities big time and they just did not like accents and references none of it made sense it was just like indian is just this one little city somewhere and they've all (laughs) come out of this one little city and they're behaving like that. it was so awkward and so you know this challenge is immense and i'm thinking you said that the creator of ginger mags is always just one person and you're 23 when you take it over is it much easier or is it much harder to do things to take on such a big responsibility and be in charge of it and you're a 20 something yeah i mean it was
0: overwhelming i initially was going to say no when it was offered to me um unfortunately uh, my predecessor on the strip james Kemsley, he was dying of motor neuron disease and he thought we thought we had more time Um, and he was going to sort of train me up and sort of show me how it's done. Cause I'd never done a daily comic strip before I was doing editorial political cartoons and caricatures and illustrations. I hadn't actually done the strip. So, um, he said, you know, it's a big responsibility, but I think you're right for it. I think I can see that you, you would be good for this. I couldn't see that in myself. Um, he was 59. He had sort of consulted with a lot of other cartoonists about who he should approach to take over the strip and apparently they 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 would my name came up every time which is odd to me because i did not think i was a good fit um i really was going to say no and then i it took some convincing i i I talked to a lot of different cartoonists and and people who were familiar like gary clark who did a strip called swamp and Mm -hmm. tony lopez who does a strip called insanity streak or in the uk it's called odd streak um, and they were really helpful in sort of kind of informing my decision to to say yes and to actually think that I might do a good job of it. And I still, to this day, I'm very grateful to them because they they were the people who helped me arrive at um, accepting it and then taking on that huge challenge of of keeping it going, but then also moving it forward. Um, I have to say that newspapers have sort of had their day, and that's an unfortunate sort of thing a lot of them are just getting sort of gobbled up by hedge funds and firms that sort of buy them and pull them apart for scrap and sell them um and then like centralize everything so there's no more local news which i think is why things like substack do so well is that Mm -hmm. you can find your niche and you can cater to your audience very specifically in a way that a local newspaper used to be able to um but yeah there's it feels like over time um from the time I took on the strip to now, the the daily newspaper is just kind of a relic. It's 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 a sa- sad truth, but it just kind of has become less of a ubiquitous source of information and, and um and community and more of just kind of this, oh, what's that? Oh, it's a newspaper. That's interesting. <laughs> it's weird to
1: see someone reading a newspaper. It's <laughs> that's so true. Like and it's, it's fallen away from use and you wonder what is the cause and what is the effect. It's a bit of a chicken and egg situation because it is, I mean, it's so easy to point to uh, online sources of news and social media as the reason for the decline of newspapers. And obviously that is also true, but mm. uh, like looking at, so I used to be very, uh, Politically aware, like I used to make political comics and following political news and political humor was so important to me I used to do that day and night So a part of what I saw at least in Indian media was that the newspapers weren't really uh, looking forward and that did not help the situation where you are facing a deficit of trust from your community because there's misinformation going around and now suddenly People have more options. Like yeah. there were multiple newspapers to choose from in my in my hometown, but wow. uh, online suddenly makes it a dif- different ball game. Yeah, no, I and uh, it, look, it's a it's a conversation I have just.
0: It seems like on repeat for the past five years at least of of where where it begins and ends as far as uh, cause and effect. And I I have to say that when the fracturing of the media landscape or the information ecosystem, let's call it became so pronounced that people were getting different, not just different versions of the news, but different news. Mm -hmm. Um, It really made it so difficult to communicate something because there was no baseline truth. And when you're writing comedy, what you're relying on is a common truth. You're relying yeah. <laughs> on um, people having the same point of reference. And what I mean by that is, you know, it was much easier when there was consensus comedy, which is like Johnny Carson getting up and saying, hey, did you just see this commercial the other day? Or hey, just what about this politician? Because everyone was getting the same news. Everyone has uh,
1: got the same cultural feed, in a sense. Yeah, like, same you know.
0: points of reference, same cultural yeah. feed. And to, in a large part, that was actually bad because it meant that, Whatever that was curated to was all you got. But on the other side, um, you know, it helped people to understand certain fundamental things um, and and communicate in such a way that they were talking about the same thing. Now people seem to be talking past each other.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: it's why I don't do political cartoons anymore. I did them for 15, 16 years. Um, and I, I really don't do them much anymore at all. If I do them, I'll do them for The New Yorker, but they're less... Sort of <laughs> incendiary takes on politics and more sort of observational social um, outcomes based on political events. Um, and it's more like when you're writing jokes for people or writing uh, comedy for a stage or for, you know, the New Yorker for gags or for the comic strip, mm-hmm. you're really keeping your audience in mind and what their frames of reference are yeah. generationally. And informationally, like what their sources of information are. Like the yeah. people I I write the comic strip for, the demographics are forty to eighty. They read the newspaper and they watch the nightly news. Like that's their information diet. And you know they, they might subscribe to some newsletters on their phone mm-hmm. or their, their desktop, but for the most part, they're getting a traditional. Let's call the traditional media diet. And then for my Substack, I know that it's a totally different audience again. And then for standup, it's eighteen to thirty four. And it's people who go out on a weeknight and they may or may not have kids. Um, you know, they have certain values. Um, and then when you go on the road, um, which I, which was a real eye opener when I started doing that in America, it's different again, because you're not in a blue bubble in a city like New York. You're, you're now speaking to people with different values and Uh different, um, points of reference and, um, sort of even structurally, you know, like a, a town versus a city, you, your the way you speak about things needs to either adapt to be sort of comprehensible to them, or you need to not change it so that it's a novelty to them. They're like, huh, this crazy guy from New York, I can't believe he thinks that it's like, you have to kind of pick one. You either want to, uh, be a chameleon and try and fit or you, you really double down on what's unique about you and you uh, make yourself a bit of an odd duck. Uh, I do the, I do the latter. Now I used to do the former and sort of code switch. Now
1: I just go, you know what? I'm weird. Just deal with it. <laughs> I resonate with so much of that, especially how, you know, stand up uh, from how you describe it. It seems so much about meeting your audience where they are mm-hmm. and it appears to me that newspapers back when it was just newspapers and this single channel of communication, one way communication for the most part, um, it was uh, like newspapers and comic strips by extension had the mandate on defining how things are. And now you have to meet your audience and you have to speak to your audience rather than speak to the thing. And you have to make like, because your audience has a stronger sense now of how things are and they don't really want to accept another version. Is that the case? Have you found it that way? Because I used to draw political comics up until 2017, Mm -hmm. but I completely stopped it because like how you describe, I found that people live in different worlds and I'm trying to talk to them from my world and they don't agree with the basic rules or the basic situation of my world. And I'm getting into these, strange dissonant uh arguments with people and we're not even talking about the same things or our words mean entirely different things to us you're talking past each other yeah. Talking past each other so there's this right. uh, there's this really beautiful uh little bit of uh stuff that i learned from this philosopher called derrida have you heard of Jacques derrida no how do you how do you how do spell it derrida is spelled d-e-r-r-i-d-a so he was this no, I haven't. No. So he was this um, French deconstructionalist philosopher and he was okay. a rabble rouser. So he would provoke people. He was a provocateur and uh, he said this thing, uh, he said, there is nothing outside the text. And <laughs> he said this other thing, which I really love, which I contrast with this statement. He said, every statement is a lie. So oh, okay. firstly, every, there is nothing outside the text and every statement is a lie. So how do you live with those two things? Uh, right. there's nothing outside. The text says that if you don't have the words for it, there is no way for you to explain the thing and therefore it doesn't exist. So if, uh, it doesn't exist in the sense of it doesn't, uh, it doesn't. So uh, let's think about something like say post uh, PTSD or even perfectionism, th- or depression, yeah. until the, these words were given to it, and these descriptions were formed, and people had a sense of what PTSD mm-hmm. might mean, what depression might mean, even if they're slightly wrong, but they have a sense of it, compared mm-hmm. to 500 years ago, or 1,000 years before, when they didn't have the words for it. did w- How did they grapple with it? How did they understand it? And what are the words they then put to it to try to understand it? And how their world was limited by the, essentially the vocabulary. These are the words with which I'm able to understand my world. And there is nothing outside the text. Wow. This is one part of it. The second part, which is really makes it fascinating to me, is how every statement is a lie. And which is sort of what you're talking about. Uh, So he said that words have two, uh, at least the big words, they have two kinds of meanings. So think of big words like love or justice or punishment or sure. uh, democracy or freedom. Uh, the words have synchronic meanings and diachronic meanings. A synchronic meaning is what you, uh, what you believe the word means now, today. And diachronic meaning is the long history of definitions it has had over the centuries. Mm-hmm. and even uh, esoteric definitions but also commonly accepted mass ideas of what justice means so yeah. again a few uh, a few decades or a few centuries ago in some places justice means an eye for an eye and if somebody kills somebody it is justified that someone would take revenge for it or someone would kill them in turn for it and how our definition of justice has evolved over time has changed and so the word justice the word democracy, the word crime, the word uh, ruler or leader, and all these ideas around it have these long history of meanings in different parts of the world. And sometimes when we're talking to people, actually, uh, Derrida would say every time we talk to someone else, we are using our meanings and they are using their meanings. So every statement is a lie because what they hear from you is never what you're saying. I should apologize to the listener if their head just exploded <laughs>
0: <laughs> because that is extraordinary. I've never heard of, of Jack Dorito. I, 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 didn't, I hadn't heard that's, it makes perfect sense that the meaning of something would evolve over time based on the evolving context. Um, and I think when it comes to art, when it comes to like, uh, what something means uh in a certain period of time versus it being translated or interpreted decades or even centuries hence it's i mean it's 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 like hieroglyphics and i mean that metaphorically like the the hieroglyphic nature of of like what we're saying and what it means may well not be what it is translated as
1: you know um by future generations future and... generations separated from the culture and yeah like i've yeah. thought that literally about hieroglyphics before that what yeah. if uh, we have a completely different understanding of you know certain parts like of course the more i learn about linguistics and archaeology yeah. the less yeah. likely it seems but my raw amateur idea was what if someone was just doing graffiti and we read it and we think of it <laughs> as completely serious and you know everybody in the past is being very uh straightforward or you know they're not they're not using metaphors they're not as complicated as us they don't use sarcasm the same way as us of course this is not the case historians are adults and educated sure. and in- intelligent and they account for these things but this is what i thought about how how easy it is to misinterpret something uh, so casual uh yeah yeah but you you studied law right no i studied engineering Oh, engineering. Yeah, right. I am an so Indian person and most of us do this thing <laughs> of studying completely un- things unrelated to our interests. And That's I studied well, to be an engineer <laughs> and I went too far with it. I got a master's degree.
0: and oh my God. Uh,
1: Then I was in the middle of a PhD program. I was going to be right. a an neuroscientist. Right. And then I quit in order to be a writer. And today wow. we are talking about all of this stuff and here i am that's a ama- well so
0: that is i i and i did know the part that you got to phd i didn't know that it was in engineering i thought it was in law or something i and i do know that you made that switch to being an artist from that phd and i was like wow what what happened <laughs> but it was more <laughs> of an enlightenment than uh, i hate engineering that so there, there are two things that i and i hope we have time um uh to talk about it um i don't i'm not on a deadline but i don't know what you're absolutely not on a deadline oh great okay um, so just sort of expounding on what you said about Dorita's sort of point about deconstruction and, and interpretation. Mm-hmm. Um, there are cartoons in the collections of, say, The New Yorker, or uh, there was a magazine called Punch in the UK for many years. Oh, yeah. it, was, it was it was like The New Yorker equivalent in the UK. And I often go through those to look at like what they were laughing at and what the points of reference are but the interpretations of the joke many of them are totally over my head and not because <laughs> i'm an immigrant like the, the uk ones and the us ones they're completely indecipherable i don't get the joke i don't get the reference i don't even understand some of the language they're using and to them and this is only like three generations ago two generations ago <laughs> and i'm looking at it going what the hell does that even mean was that a meme like was that their equivalent of a meme back right. then? because I think about political cartoons, you know, in in history, you study, you study the text, but then sometimes you'll study the political cartoons at the time. So for instance, world war Mm two, and you look at the cartoons from world war two, um, by cartoonists in the UK or the U S. Um, and then you kind of can, it's the difference between understanding what was happening, what was being written about, what was happening by the journalists and what people were thinking about what was happening, Mm -hmm. the art in the in political cartoon distilled the sort of opinion or the zeitgeist of, of, of what people were feeling about what was happening versus what was being written about, which was like, here's what happened today. Um, and that interpretation, again, if you study those same cartoons today, in the context of say, a, a Ukrainian uh, a hot war, and you know, or, or in the in the context of, um, you know, social media, or okay. everyone being divided, um, and having uh, different um, ethics on, like, basic morals and ethics on certain things. Great. Um, you, could, you could come to understand just how flexible those interpretations are and how right uh, Jack Dorita is in, in his sort of assessment of the fact that linguistically, but also just contextually, things change with context and with time. Uh, it's probably part of the reason that we keep repeating a lot of history. We keep doing a lot of things and not learning from history. Is that we build our own interpretations and then make the same mistakes because intrinsically that's just what we do as humans. Um, I do a lot of work with Sam Harris, who mm-hmm. uh, has an app called Waking Up, mm-hmm. and a lot of his, a lot of the things I work with him on are um, like the conversations section, um, illustrating the conversations section, but also something called the essential Sam Harris, which is trying to distill down uh, certain ideas that are complex it's really difficult to distill complex things down to me uh i guess more um i guess digestible um uh, bites of information so i do that with illustrations and cartoons along with a team that um puts those essential packages together in sort of a visual form Mm -hmm. as well as an audio form so things like ai morality, consciousness, violence, free will, belief, nuclear war, social media, information, landscape, deaths, all the big spirituality, ones. all the big ones, the real <laughs> heavy, complex, divisive topics that are really difficult to distill, but the interpretations of them change based on your, even your exposure, mm-hmm. your information exposure. Um, and as you know, sort of creativity, can simply be bringing two disparate things together that haven't been combined before, but they were combined because they were both in your mind right. um, based on your exposure to them. So uh, not to get too far into the weeds, but uh, I do think a big piece of what we do as artists, um, not trying to be too high-minded about it, but <laughs> is is kind of interpreting our experience of our own, Consciousness as yeah. it pertains to our context in the world. So, when you're sitting in a gallery and you're drawing some people that you see, it might look like just a little sketch of a thing, but your sort of micro observations of posture and how you interpret, you know, the way fabric uh, uh, falls on someone's body or how their shoes look on their feet or you know even a shadow the way a shadow is cast on something Mm -hmm. all of those little tiny things are your personal interpretation of your experience that i think build a distinct sort of unique value to your work and uh yeah that's that's one of the things that i enjoy about doing what we do is 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 sort of sharing that um let's call a version of existence a version of interpretation of our existence
1: yeah yeah oh i i i so agree like especially with these really complicated subjects i feel like uh the position of art and illustration by extension is a very interesting position um yeah. the other so all my life i have only wanted to be a writer ever since i knew that this is a wow. job one can have that these books that i read so voraciously uh, they are written by a person and that person can also be me i can also just write uh, ever since I learned this when I was very young, I only ever wanted to be a writer. So wow. I have always had this reverence for words in my mind. And mm-hmm. in my life, I like to memorize slogans of brands. So that's a small <laughs> manifestation. I would remember quotes oh. from my favorite books and I would write them down because the words really matter to me. And okay. today we are in a world where words have a dispropor- like have this strange importance where people think words are so uh, powerless and irrelevant, but our daily existence is mm-hmm. governed by them. Our interaction yeah. w- our 90% of our interactions with other people are through the words that they write to us and we write to them, uh, through text. And then mm-hmm. we are interpreting those texts like textual communication is such an interesting thing that has happened to us that did not happen to any previous generation of humans. Because we are talking instantly and emotionally and using these emojis and using the various acronyms and using our own jargon and languages. And we are communicating by text. And then that text, uh, as Derrida would look and smile and uh, comment, uh, is a lie because now it's up to the interpretation of the other person. And there is no human-to-human connection in this or, well, physical connection in this. And there is so much ample opportunity for misinformation and for simply being uh, influenced in another direction or misinterpretation, because, you know, it's just words and everybody is reading words in their own way and processing them in their own way. In this sort of situation, I love what art has sort of enabled me to do. It's taken a lot of time to understand it and then to empower myself to do it and then to respect what this thing is. Yeah. As a person who has loved words all his life, uh, now to say that words are really sometimes so useless at doing the thing that they are supposed to do. Like, wow, yeah. words are so bad at meaning things. And that's like (laughs) the one job they have.
0: You have to put that on a mug or something. (laughs) Words are so bad at meaning
1: things. You can't can't get people. Yeah. And this is the same problem you have as a writer. You have it as a stand-up comic. You said this word, but now everybody's got a different thing in their head. And like, I use the word for a reason, guys. Like, But that's it. That's the problem. And so art comes in. And yes. Art is this really fascinating thing. There are, as as a society that is conditioned to giving words this enormous importance, mm-hmm. we also tend to think that, so there's this common sentiment, you know, I like this painting, but I don't know what I like about it. Sure. <laughs> yeah. uh, and of course, you'll have people who love art who will say this, but also a lot of people who are, quote unquote, casually indulging. So uh, right. a few... Uh, months ago uh, in March, I was in New York and I went to the MoMA for the first time in my life oh, and wow. I walked o- up and down and up and down and I did three circuits of the whole place. Fascinating. <laughs> and one of the things I was doing in the, in these circuits was just observing the kinds of people who come to see modern art. And this yeah. was the question in my mind. Who comes to look at modern art? Yeah. And is it always people who know modern art and who appreciate art history and have a sense of what's what and what is it what in relation to something else Mm. or is it people who are here because this is one of those iconic New York places you have to go and it's an experience just go without thinking too much I was one of those Mm. people like I don't know a lot of art history and I just wanted to see what I could see and see what would happen from it so I was looking at these other people who in my mind were also in a similar place and a lot of people in that situation would say that there's things I liked but I don't know why I liked it and therefore it's probably not very good because I can't describe what I liked about it and here's what I'm thinking so coming yeah. back to the things that we're talking about that sure we are so predisposed to words now we think that if we can't put it in words it's not real uh um, wow. Delta would yeah. say there's nothing outside the text so if you <laughs> can't if you can't find the words for it, it's probably not a real feeling. And if you can't describe it perfectly, then it's probably not real at all. Right. And this is where art comes in. Art, from the point of view of the creator, and then for all the succeeding years, months, decades, centuries, from the point of view of the people looking at it, is Mm -hmm. non-verbal communication. And it's got complexities, it's got stories, it's got protagonists and antagonists, and it's got drama and dynamics, but it doesn't have words. Right. All of these complexities are communicated without getting into this sad business of translating them into words and then translating them out of it again.
0: Yeah, this is what I hate about that little white thing under the painting. (laughs) I really despise... The because I live in Chelsea in the west side of Manhattan, yeah. and uh, every morning I walk the High Line, and at the bottom is the Whitney, and then up by me is about fifty different galleries full of all kinds of art. But the descriptions underneath them are so full of crap uh, at trying to distill in words what the painting is about, mm-hmm. uh, and it's not always written by the artist. It's it's sometimes written by the gallerist to try and inflate its importance or value or context or whatever it is which is so much of the art world is just like building in sort of retroactively building in what the thing is rather than just letting it be yeah and what's interesting about you uh, especially going to MoMA and this is something I mean it's I love that you said that because I do that at the Met and I I go uh to watch the people not the paintings because I've (laughs) seen the the paintings I've seen the textiles I've seen that you know, like, right. you know the old uh, uh, sculptures and things. But I love seeing people react. That's my favorite part: oh. watching people react to the art. And I, I, I lose days doing that. And and when I'm at a comedy show, when I'm not on stage, like before I get on stage, I'm not watching the comedian. I'm watching the audience. I'm watching their reactions because that, to me, is that. If there is a text, that's what it is for me. Is that's the information that I'm getting is the reaction from them to what's happening on stage. And for you to kind of go to a gallery and watch people watching art, (laughs) I know it sounds very meta and very, you know, but it, it is, I think, certainly to me, I I find that way more interesting than just looking at the art itself and, and knowing how it affects me and, and where I'm standing, when I'm looking at it and, and how I feel, looking at it today versus how I feel looking at it in a week from now or a year from now, in my own emotional context or whatever it is, or my age, you know, Um, I think that you're exactly right. It is a nonverbal form of communication that fills in the gap where words
1: fail. One of the other questions at MoMA to me was this, um, for these young people, for Gen Z, like I grew up with a phone also, but for Gen Z that is born in the thick of social media and Mm -hmm. all the corporations of the world throwing content at you all the time Uh, to be born in this world. um, I feel like everyone has seen everything now in their screens. Like you can't really surprise anybody with anything. Nobody is ever in true awe of something else because they've always seen a version of something fantastical on a reel or a TikTok. (laughs) And so nobody's really surprised by anything. So for me, the experience at the MoMA was also to a gen, like thinking about the generation that has seen everything on their phones already. What does this physical confrontation with art bring? And what are the things that are truly remarkable, but that they just walk past? Because Mm. a lot of, say, a lot of realist art, a lot of, like, say, Renoir or even uh a, a lot of painters from the so Rembrandt for example people who are very realistic and who did this incredible job and were revolutionary in many ways but their art is so ubiquitous and it's become such a part of pop culture or generally in media it has been meanified actually mummified is nice like it's it's like mummified because it, it, it has been preserved yeah mummified versus mummified. but you've kind of made a different you kind of made a different version of it as a meme so how they relate to something and if it's memified then do they give it a second glance and then what do they stop at and what makes them suddenly look again like something that they haven't already seen in their devices and something that has a you know that that's stopping in the middle of like a carousel that you are on in a museum usually in a packed museum the act of stopping is a genuine reaction so I wanted to see where do they stop and is it always like the famous painter or is it someone random so 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 to say random like someone they don't know at all someone I don't know at all someone who isn't a meme that makes them stop or is it always something popular and these reactions are so much more genuine to me at least to me, than th- those of an art historian because too much knowledge, like I think, comes in the way of free contemplation. So there's, this is a phrase that I uh, read and understood and absorbed recently, the importance of free contemplation of art. So not having those little white boxes, like you say, which tell you why he did this, what he did, and when and how. And instead to just look at the art as an experience and in that experience to go somewhere with it, not necessarily curated or defined or guided by the museum.
0: Hmm. That is, yeah, that is interesting. I think the relationship people have with the medium that they see whatever they see uh, on is, is, is becoming more essential than it ever has before when you used to go to a museum or a gallery it's because it was curated by someone deliberately okay. and it was curated for a public whereas now your algorithmic curation of what you see it's it's literally tailored to your brain and and ever more um it just it gets ever more accurate as to what it knows you like So, as you say, people just strolling past a Renoir or a Jeff Koons or whatever it is that they they like—they well that they uh, sort of told that they should enjoy or um, like—while they're also they've got their TikTok open. Um, I think it's a different relationship that people have for the authority of the medium. So, uh, a museum wall is a very deliberate attempt to share a thing with people and getting back to what we started talking about which is the reaction doesn't belong to you everyone will have a different interpretation of the piece a different reaction hopefully they don't take too much of the interpretation that's written in the little thing as you know as the canon as the thing that it absolutely is or isn't um but then you know, I, I have to really come to grips with the fact that, and I'm reluctant to, but I, I have to just accept that the phone screen is the new museum wall. It's the new mm-hmm. canvas that people have to, they have, you're right, Gen Z and 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 incoming generations who are digital natives, they do have a trust for what, for the most part, for what they see on that screen um, that, that sort of black mirror canvas is, is their museum wall. So their interpretation of value is different. And I think that's something that when I look at things online, I too wonder like who else is seeing this? I wonder who else is getting this stuff in their feed. I wonder if they're making of it the same thing that I am. <laughs> I wonder, I wonder how they're interpreting it because, yeah, that's right. the ubiquity
1: of, 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 of a, you know, a smartphone. Everyone yeah. has it now. Oh, yes. Like, I was talking with one of my uh, colleagues, and he's a really popular artist on Instagram and TikTok. And uh, we spoke about how 99 point, like an overwhelmingly large percentage of our audience is only ever going to see our work through the screen. They are never going to physically see my sketchbook they might never ever see my paintings or my drawings on a wall somewhere. Mm. They will always only see me through the screen. So it's important to understand this because in so many ways, especially if you're an independent artist or creator of any kind, mm. the, the, the thing on the screen is the product. So we were thinking about reels and we were thinking about how the drawing I make that day and how good it is or how beautiful it is, blah, blah, blah those things are not really relevant because if the product is on the screen, then the product is not the finished drawing in my sketchbook. The product is the reel that I make. And the picture that I take with the drawing and the subject in the back of it and the filter that I put on it, that is the art. And the drawing, the quote unquote, the actual art is just the means to make the real art which is happening on everybody's screens uh, do you have to so we're going to talk about uh, comics again in a little bit and we're going to talk about stand up a little later but i want to sort of uh, join the two right now because this question just occurred to me do you have to think about this differently with respect to your comics your writing and your stand up like how people are digitally going to receive it and out of context so to speak Yeah,
0: I think about it a lot because I've actually had some instances where it's been taken out of context and then posted, um, and then people will interpret it sort of erroneously. And when I say erroneously, uh, you know, I realize that that's in stark contradiction to my, (laughs) the the reaction doesn't belong to you. But when Mm. something's purposefully taken out of context and then displayed like a clip of stand-up or a that's within the uh, context of a larger, you know, chunk of material, um, or one panel of a comic strip, uh, without the context of the setup of the first panel or the last panel, it kind of gets into your brain. How could this be misinterpreted? How could this be misused? Like in the way that someone, um, you know, uh, accidentally treads on toes or on a, on a thermonuclear topic, um, 40 years ago in a graphic novel and all of a sudden that page Gets a photo. Fo- someone takes a photo of them puts it on Twitter and all of a sudden they're getting buried alive and cancelled on Twitter because of something they wrote 40 years ago that is, you know, uh, interpreted differently now. Mm-hmm. A- again, getting back to uh, Dorita, that's, that's another thing that just happens now is with comedy especially because comedy, I think Jerry Seinfeld was saying that like roughly every 20 years, what is funny to a community, to an audience, does actually it is there is an entropy to to a joke i see it does change so whilst the fundamentals of of like the mechanics of comedy don't change Mm -hmm. like why something works as a joke like the structure um that doesn't change the the topics and and the things that are funny and why they're funny they do change and you do have to sort of consider that and when people are watching like I don't know if you've noticed in the past few years, especially and and especially since the prevalence of TikTok and Reels on Instagram and Facebook is um, instead of posting their material online, comedians will post crowd work. You know, that's like the big thing now is instead of um, burning your material, it's called burning your material. If you put it it online, uh, it means you can't record it on a special. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, right. Oh, that's true yeah so you don't want to put your you don't want to burn your material Mm -hmm. you want to just show crowd work clips that kind of illustrate what your act is what your voice is why you are different than every other comedian but also like your reaction to an audience member is a perfect illustration of like what your take is when someone yells out something about i don't know being uh dyslexic okay what do you got for that and so you see comedians a great uh examples like phil hanley is a great, um, as far as crowd work goes, it, he, Sam Murill, you know, they're some of the best sort of joke writers, but they're also outstanding at being able to interact with an audience and, and it go on the screen, the phone screen, and go kind of viral because they just have that skill and it works quite well for that medium, for TikTok and Instagram and Reels because it's spontaneous and it's unscripted. And it's not rehearsed. It's not something they wrote right. um, and rehearsed a million times. It's something they're just coming up with in the moment. And there's something very real and dangerous about that. You know, it's like yeah. it's like watching
1: someone draw live. <laughs> it's like, oh my God,
0: I'm going to watch you make a mistake any minute now. You know, right.
1: <laughs> it's just. Yeah, it's it's, it's a moment of uh, quote unquote reality in a otherwise scripted set. Like, because otherwise he's got a five minute or a 10 minute set. Mm-hmm. But then there's this interruption. And now he's dealing with, they're dealing with it. And, like, what's also interesting about it is, I think, because there is a sense of a confrontation, like a lot of the popular videos are how somebody handled a heckler, or how Mm -hmm. somebody handled somebody who had opposite views. So especially political comics get this a lot. Yeah. And this confrontation sort of, I mean, I think I'm always thinking about the dynamics of social media. And to me, it appears like putting a confrontation, like sharing a reel or a TikTok of a confrontation allows people to take one or the other side. And as soon as they take one or the other side, uh, you've got them as an audience. And uh, yeah. it leads to more viral TikToks. Like I feel like a lot of people do this because I never thought about your point about burning materials because this is that is also super relevant to this. But mm. I feel like this kind of confrontational stuff is very, very, very uh, topical and useful because of how social media works. So like you were saying you know, people design their own feeds and everybody thinks that their feed is their feed and it's exactly tailored to them and they have made it happen that way. Mm. And the business of consuming content on your phone, whether it's news or whether it's something viral or real or whatever, comedy, right. versus newspapers and televisions and it's given to you. Like, I think the fundamental difference is also this sense of self And me wanting, me getting what I want right now and not something else. Every moment of the day, every day of the week, I only want exactly what I want. And if I'm not, I don't like this in this moment, I'm going to swipe away or I'm going to close the app or I'm going to comment uh, adversely to it or I'm going to dislike it if I can or downvote it if I can. Yeah. And this is a dynamic that's, I, I don't know how I feel about it. I feel like there is so much liberation here from both mm-hmm. the audience side and from the creator side but there's also a sense of now needing to cater to the maximum likes oh, we're getting we're getting derailed to something else that i was thinking about let's go back to what i was asking you about uh, just as a stand up comedian do you think about moments like ha- has it changed your act to think that something might need to be a reel or a tiktok video
0: so um I, I made a very conscious decision not to do that, not to um, put up clips of my my act or my style. And I do, I do shows all the time where I do, I do crowd work and I do interact with the audience. In fact, there's a show that I do called Picture This. It's a monthly show. We do one in LA and one in New York every month. And we have cartoonists backstage on a drawing tablet drawing what the comedians on stage are talking about. And they mm-hmm. interact with it. And it's very spontaneous and interactive. And it's closer to uh, almost like an improv show than a stand-up show. But, um, but I don't post those clips um, because I, I do feel that there is an enormous value in something being in the room. There is this sort of unspoken consensus among a group of strangers in the dark that they all laughed at the same thing at the same time, but it was in the context of them being there then at mm. that time. And whilst there are comedians who do fantastic clips that go viral and they do very well online, um, there is the sinister side of it, um, where it can go very, very badly. Um, a friend of mine, uh, <laughs> I feel like even saying that she's a friend is gonna get me buried, um, uh, Jocelyn Chia. Uh, she and I work together on a lot of things uh, and I've known her for a long time. And she had a part of a joke it was part of a larger piece go viral on TikTok, and now the Malaysian government want her to be arrested. Oh, wow! Um, it's got if you if you Google Jocelyn cheer like it literally the Guardian and the New York Times comes up as her being cancelled for this joke. Oh, damn. Um, it's not even, and it's not even a good joke, like she it's not be- even a <laughs> good joke. It, well, the thing it, like I think she's annoyed because it's not even her best stuff. Like, right. if you're going to get cancelled for a joke. You want it to be a oh, potentially incident. arrested. Yeah, it's pretty bad. <laughs> um, so it's really <laughs> escalated to an international incident. But I, I very deliberately go away from that. Um, and I also feel, and the reason I, I also avoid it is that um something that I I'm kind of a broken record with with friends of mine, creative friends of mine, on social media about this and the central tenet of it is don't curate your art to what gets likes, curate it to what you like Mm -hmm. and people will find you. If you create the thing that you really like and naturally like a people will notice that you passionately like it and they're drawn to people who are passionate about something like organically, not artificially passionate. Um, and, and B they'll, you'll just find your people. Your people will, as, as I know it's frustrating because it takes time, it's a slow process, but um, your people will find you in that sort of sea of brains just all floating <laughs> around that very slim sliver of the biograph, You know, in comedy, in cartooning and writing, all of it, you sort of end up becoming a magnet for those people and then they build a community around your ideas and your voice, right? So instead of trying to be everything to everyone, which is impossible, so almost like being a perfectionist, um, it's just an unattainable goal. You end up sort of doubling down on, on what what it is that you really enjoy and why you enjoy it. And then just kind of do that thing and stop noticing if you get a certain amount of likes or comments on one particular thing because you'll be very, very tempted to just keep doing that one thing right? and then, you know, go down that path. And it may not be, look, it may be what you like and that could be a good thing, but it may not be the thing that you're really meant to be doing. You're doing that artificially based on what's
1: getting boosted on the algorithm, not oh yeah, what is fulfilling to you. So I, I, I 100% agree with this. Like I have written about it and I have spoken about it. And I tell people all the time that, this is unfortunately what uh, social media incentivizes yeah you are exactly. boosted in the algorithm if you are a predictable experience if you are the same thing every time yeah and uh, the the way people use social media like even human behavior is again you know you're in their social media you're in their world even if it's yeah. your account mm-hmm. and when they come to your account they kind of want a certain thing from you yeah. And if they like your account, they have the expectation that you will give them that thing again, that feeling, that uh the emotion, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Exactly. Yeah. And this will push you towards a box. <laughs> but you have to yep. you have to avoid these boxes because the idea of being creative does not work if you sit inside a box doing the same thing again and again. So uh, there's this there's this uh like, there's this thing I learned from somebody. It's a, it's a principle of economics. And I had to sort of uh, rejig it to fit to social media and to being an artist. Um, it's called Goodhart's Law. Is there any chance you've heard of it? No, no, I haven't. Okay, so this is a good one. You like it. Uh, what it says is, when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a useful measure. Oh, wow. That's good. So that is good. yeah, so let's think about social media. So uh, your social media following as a measure of how good you are, or how popular you are. When this number of your following becomes a target for you to reach, it becomes it ceases to be a useful measure of those other things, your popularity or how good you are. Because once it's a target, you think I have to reach 100,000 followers you're going to do all of these things to reach 100,000 followers. You could, for example, give money to Mark Zuckerberg to promote your account. Mm-hmm. And if you run ads on Instagram enough, you will acquire lots and lots of followers. But a lot of those followers, for example, in Facebook's case, are going to be bots because Mark Zuckerberg is a crook. And so therefore, you will have a lot of followers, but you don't actually have a lot of followers. So. This measure of how good you are or how popular you are is no more a useful measure because it is the data is polluted with all these things that are other than your popularity or your goodness.
0: Mm, yeah. Another
1: right. another nice contrast was say during COVID, for example, uh, some parts of India, some states in India set a target of zero COVID, and now the covid numbers are no longer a measure of public health because how do you get zero covid just make it difficult for people to get tests <laughs> so suddenly you don't have the same covid numbers but now the covid numbers that you do have are no longer useful for anything they are no longer a useful measure of how the country is doing how the state is doing whether people are healthy or unhealthy because they just can't get the test yeah yeah wow i mean the metrics changed when the algorithm decided
0: to suppress static posts and elevate video posts like reels, I have friends who have literally, some of them like 4 million people following them and they can only access maybe a thousand of those at any given time with a post because they post comics static comics mm-hmm. and so they're on paper it looks amazing mm-hmm. and a publisher would see that and go what are your stats and as you know <laughs> every time when you're Pitching a book, one of the first questions they ask, and I really despise this, but it's a truth of the publishing industry: is they they go, "Are you verified on Twitter and Tumblr?" Uh, sorry, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Mm-hmm. Are you on TikTok? Um, because what if we could get you to go viral on BookTok? Um, are you? You know, how many followers do you have? Uh, because so much of the onus is on the author, the creator, to actually mm-hmm. promote the book through their network. But the problem is. Um, As I say, you know, you could have 4 million followers, but your ability to actually reach those 4 million followers is entirely governed by the platform that it's on and the algorithm dictating it. So it's why I've always been such a staunch proponent of newsletters going way back. um, I started a MailChimp newsletter many years ago when I was doing stand-up to try and get audiences to come to shows. So I'd stand at the door after the show and I'd hand out a business card with my I'm such a nerd with uh with my Mailchimp uh, mailing list a QR code and a and a link.
1: Oh, I have so a QR say, code
0: on my on my business card as well. Yeah, I mean, I have I have one now for my Substack, but um, it, and I I hide them all over the, in New York. <laughs> I sort of <laughs> leave them at bars and in bathrooms and things. It's weird, but oh, someone QR might s- can confuse it for a
1: menu, maybe.
0: I definitely put them in the check. You know, when the check comes, and there's a little right. booklet. I put uh-huh. it in there for sure, and <laughs> I put them in a couple of menus here and there. Um, okay. Once in a while, there'll be like an art book shop, and I'll there'll be books about New York, and I'll like slip my cartoon, New oh, York cartoons, that's just, just like because I'm like, well, that's your audience. So I need to do, do that
1: now. I'm gonna I'm gonna take that idea. I'm gonna do this all over Vancouver. Just leave it's like, things. It's like a pirate, uh, you know. <laughs> I'm
0: really I'm really uh, probably um, uh, breaking some kind of law, but I don't know. Um, but that, that sort of direct connection that you have with newsletter readers versus people who opted, opted in, they didn't hit follow. They didn't click follow. They actually opted in and put entered their email address and they confirmed, they said, yes, I want to hear from you. Um, and if your open rate is anywhere near 50%, which is very good, then you're doing way better than the guy with 4 million followers on Instagram. Who's hitting, you know, getting a thousand responses from his 4 million followers, um. And I think that that is the truth of what's sort of coming with, you know, one post could get 10 million views on TikTok and then the next post might get five. Absolutely. Because because going viral on something like TikTok doesn't necessarily mean that your account goes viral and and blows up. It means that that post goes viral. And you maybe, or even it's maybe it's just the comment section of one particular post goes, don't go nuclear. (laughs) But then everything else you've ever posted gets totally ignored. Oh yeah. Um, so I don't think it's an accurate metric of success or popularity. I don't, I also don't think it's a particularly useful metric when publishers sort of come to you and say, uh, yeah, your, your book idea is great, but how many social media followers do you have? Cause otherwise it's, it's not, we're not going to have the conversation. Right. Um, I, I just don't think it's a, a useful metric anymore. Maybe once upon a time it was, but I just don't think anymore it is a useful metric of the success of an idea or your ability to disseminate that idea to
1: your people. Yeah, very, very true. Uh, And I think a lot of brands are rising up to this as well, because like, I feel like a lot of brands now, they don't just look at this number of followers, because they know that can be purchased. They look at engagement, and they look at how active your comments are. And uh, like, as soon as you know, people who are putting money into these things, Start to look at different metrics. You know that the previous metrics are not useful anymore. Uh, so let's go back in time now. I want to go back to before the acquired wisdom from all the experiences to right. how you started to be a cartoonist. And you live in Perth, Aust- you lived in Perth, Australia, which I know is in Western Australia because of the cricket ground, um, <laughs> the wacker, yeah, the wacker. <laughs> and I I also know it's a very difficult. Venue to win at. Um, speaking of cricket, by the way, condolences for the Ashes. I'm really yeah, yeah, sad yeah, to see how it went much. down.
0: It's, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I have yeah, I have hated Australian cricketers
1: for many many years. I have had very strong feelings about them and antagonistic feelings. But the current <laughs> English cricket team really has turned me into a diehard Australian supporter. <laughs>
0: more people in Australia could name the entire Australian cricket team than who is prime minister right now. (laughs) Uh, It is a, it is the national sport in the way that I guess baseball is the national sport in America. Yeah. Although football is is very quickly, you know, uh, surpassing it, surpassing baseball. Um, yeah, Perth was a, and is, I love Perth. It's a beautiful city. It is, (laughs) it's it's basically a town parading as a city. (laughs) It's a beautiful place. Um, I've heard people say that it's a great place to be a baby and have a baby and not a lot in between. (laughs) And by that I mean um, if you want to have a career in, say, the creative arts or be surrounded by the best in the industry to challenge you to sort of increase your skill or knowledge level or ability, uh, this isn't an elitist thing. This is purely just by virtue of... You know this is what happens people concentrate in in epicenters like london and new york and la and you know the people gravitate towards each other towards the best of what the thing they want to do so it's why actors go to la it's why you know um bankers go to london and new york um it's, it's just and tech people go to san francisco um it, it, it just is what it is and so perth is the most isolated capital city in the world um uh-huh. it's also a huge advantage I, considered it, I consider myself very lucky that I grew up in Perth. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a great acting school there called WAPA, the WA Academy of Falling Arts. It's where Hugh Jackman went and a lot of big actors like Heath Ledger and people like that. Um, because you get to kind of practice in the quiet and the solitude of a place that isn't a sort of bustling, you know, uh, humming hive of what have you got next? What have you got? What have you got? You know, it's right. like... It's a quiet, um, slow-paced, um, you know, it's it's parochial, I guess, but it's also um, you make your mistakes in the dark while less people are watching. I wouldn't say, well, nobody's watching because uh, the internet <laughs> is what it is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and there are still people in Perth. Like, they have fantastic comedy festivals and theater, fantastic theater there, great music. Um, mm-hmm. But it's definitely a... Um, a place to hone your craft right. before you take it out into the world. Oh, so I, I thought, it, I, for me, um, although there weren't a lot of cartoonists there, there were like two working cartoonists in all of Perth, and they're still there doing the exact same job, and it's been for nearly 40 years <laughs> since you know they started doing those jobs. Um, I did think that at the time, as frustrated as I was to just get out into the world and start doing things, what I realized is I was very lucky that I was honing my craft in the in the sort of um, like a sandbox
1: <laughs> it's funny
0: the West Australians are called sand gropers because uh, everything on wa is a beach like the best beaches in the whole world <laughs> if you like surfing that's where you live mm-hmm. um but it is a sandbox it is kind of this place where you can make your mistakes and make sort of you can grow and you can experiment and you can. Do things that you might not ordinarily be willing to do because you're worried that, you know, if you're in New York, someone might see it and think, oh, well, that's the thing he does. Right. And first impressions last. So, yeah. um, um, you know, you're not making a lot of first impressions in Perth with big, you know, like e- agents and managers and art directors, right? people like that. So, um, yeah, I, I think Perth uh, as a cartoonist, really, really difficult to make a living in Perth as a cartoonist unless... Mm-hmm. You know, you're like a giant name that doesn't need to be anywhere to work and can just sell you. Yeah, books. if your geography is irrelevant. Yeah, if the geography is irrelevant, it's a beautiful place to live. If you're if if you need to be in a place to do a thing, it's really tough. Yeah, you. There are very few people who can. I mean, there are some who do, but it's very difficult to make a uh, a living doing that thing from that place. Um, often, you have to leave to to do that thing. So there's a huge what they call you know brain drain. Um, there's a lot of people moving to Melbourne and Sydney and then overseas, um, to try and actually work in their craft in such a way that they can make a living doing it yeah. rather than
1: having a side hustle, you know, having like a full-time job or a part-time job and then having their passion as a side hustle. Yeah. Or even like a big place like Fountain Lakes, Victoria. Do you know about Fountain Lakes, Victoria? Uh, I've heard of Fountain Lakes. Yeah. It's, it's a thriving town that I know about because of one of my favorite sitcoms. Oh, Kevin uh, Kim. <laughs> <Kat> and Kim. <laughs> yeah. But um, so tell me a little bit about um, just this path to becoming a cartoonist. Like at 23, you're taking over Ginger Megs, which is such a massive responsibility. And I'm so curious about what you did in the lead up to this that got you this job. So tell me a little bit about uh, growing up in Perth and the kind of comics and the kind of influences that pushed you towards expressing yourself in this manner. This was part one of my conversation with Jason Chatfield. Thank you so much for listening. Up next is part two. To be part of the conversation, or make a joke about the Australian cricket team, join over 10,000 readers of my Substack newsletter, almost exclusively devoted to making fun of the Australian cricket team. Link in the episode description. Thank you to the wonderful people that support this show via Substack, my Australian cricket team-hating Substack publication. I do all the work around this show myself, from booking guests to producing the episode, and even framing these words that I'm saying right now None of it would be possible without the support of sneaky art insiders, including some based in Australia. Thank you again, and I look forward to seeing you in the next one.